0: to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. In this episode, I interview Bill Edhouse, who was a Royal New Zealand Air Force air gunner during World War II. He served with the original No. 6 squadron on Hawker Hines, and then went to No. 20 squadron, again on Hines. He then went to No. 1 squadron, serving with Ventura's. And following his tour in the Pacific on Venturas, he then joined No. 6 Squadron again, now flying the Catalina Flying Boats. For me this is a pretty special interview. Bill was the grandfather of my brother-in-law, Steve Edhouse, and so he was family. He was a real character and I always really enjoyed talking with Bill. Sadly he passed away in March 2017, so I'm so glad that I got this interview with him. Here's Bill. I always start off with these interviews just by asking your full name, rank, and serial number.
1: Ooh. Well, they are. Uh, I know my name. <laughs> That's William John Edhouse. I was born in Owakuni, 16th of June, 1922. And the, wind, the snow was up to the windowsills. My dad told me. <laughs> I don't remember it. But they... Um, now, that's where I spent my early school days, right to about 18 or 19, I suppose, when I joined the Air Force. And how I joined the Air Force is uh, still a, a bit of a blur in my mind, but uh, I think I must have done it through the post office. Everything was done through post office in those days. Uh... Now we haven't got post offices. we've got shops on the side of the road that sell a stamp and you can't get a park to go and get it, so they call it progress. We did have a good system. Getting off the track I bet that's what happens. Yeah.
0: So so um, uh, you mentioned earlier something about um, the first time you saw an aeroplane and you skipped school.
1: Oh yeah, well it was during those early school days at Owakuni. That mountain up there is where I was born, if you would see that up there. And uh, there was a it was called Oakuni Junction. The junction was a, a, a rail line that went from Oakuni to Ratahi. Now Ratahi is, uh, it was designed to be a city. You need a push bike to go across the road. it's so big it's mighty compared to the, some of those other little country towns where well, you live know, They are very, very narrow streets but uh, rather, he's got a wide stretch, for that reason. But um, there's such a thing, as you've probably all heard about a bush telegraph, and I think it must have worked, because I can't understand how we knew as primus I was in the primers in those days. I think I was only just started school. I hadn't been there very long. I in the primus. and we knew that there were some aeroplanes out of Makarunui, a place called Makarunui. Right. And as primalists, we got out of school early to go home. Uh, we could out up past two. Everybody else had to stay till three o'clock sort of thing, you know, in the early days. So right now, we a bunch of we coppers. I don't know where they are now, of course, but they all grew up. We all took, took off went down this junction railway line to get to Makarunui to see these aeroplanes instead of going home like we're supposed to. Anyway... To cut a long story short, my mother must have had a fit, I probably was a handful, it was only one occasion where I was a bit of a handful, i just disappeared. And when my dad came home, he knew there was aeroplanes out there too, so how did we know, because we had no telephone, people just said good day to each other, and everybody knew what was happening. It was a Bush telegraph operating. Somebody knew something that was gossip straight away, and everybody knew. But we knew too. So. And anyway, my dad came home, pacified my me, had all the other brothers all hunting around looking for me. Where's Bill? He said they school. He should have been home by now. Where's he got to? Fall, falling in the drain somewhere. Bill worries were. We right had to cross the river to get home, of course, and that was another worry. He'd fallen in the river, fallen in the creek, got hurt. Terrible time. And in the meantime, I was leaning on a fence, gazing in awe and wonder at these flying cars. They taxied out from under the trees, and they zoomed up into the sky and back again. And I was really taking it. And it came dark. I was still there. And my dad and my mother and the brothers all came. They, they plonked everybody in the old Model A. We had an old tin Lizzie in those days. He plonked them all in there and he said, I know where you'll be. About to end it, the aeroplanes. They found me. <laughs> What's the these aeroplanes? Get home. Get home. Go Where are you going? You're supposed to be home. Where didn't you? Anyway, that was my first introduction to aeroplanes.
0: And when you applied for the Air Force, did you want to be a pilot?
1: Well, in those days, he just joined. It depended on what they needed more than anything. You could ask to be a pilot, of course. I couldn't even drive a car. But I told him I could. I had knowledge of driving a car. <laughs> Dad wouldn't let us drive his car. No show. <laughs> we might smash it. So anyway, you know, one thing led to another. But I knew how it was done, how I got through to, it's mentioned in one of those interviews I did with an American chap how they decided I was suitable material for a, uh, to be in the Air Force, that's how I got in. But I must have joined it through the Air Force, uh, through the post office, because there's no other way that I could think of. I had no ambition, there was no ambition. All I knew were two brothers who joined the army, and from what they told me, I didn't want to be a foot flogger. I was 10 years old before I even saw the sea, so I didn't know enough about the sea. I knew about rivers and lakes and things like that and ponds and so on, catching fish and eels and trout, but nothing to do with the sea. So I thought, oh, I'll try the Air Force. <laughs> that was, but well, I, I beg your pardon about the, my introduction to the to an Air Force. It, wasn't, it was Captain, what's his name? Uh, Kingsford Smith, Kingsford Smith, I remember quite clearly the day that he flew over from, the, from Australia to New Zealand. And I was only about a five or six year old, I think I'd be about six. And we'd been out the back of Goldie's farm catching these little froly crayfish, you know, Kura, I think it's a Maori name for Fresh, freshwater crayfish. And I couldn't keep up with my two brothers, they were a bit of faster than me, and I flaked out on this wooden bridge and the tram line, the wooden tram line to take the logs and things through the sawmills. And I flaked out and I heard this noise in the sky and I looked up and here's a whacking great big bird flying over an engine. <laughs> it was Kingswood Smith. I've never forgotten that. I immediately started pe- peeling one with a pocket knife to try and make a little airplane <laughs> and stick it on a stick. <laughs> so that was my introdu- introduction to him. Air Force thinking and I don't regret it over the years. Uh, I soon got interested in it when we did join and we got with it I couldn't stand the drill part though it was a bit of a bit of a nuisance. Where, where did you do that first training was that- uh, it that was at Rotorua but to get there to be accepted there was a big deal when I got that telegram, to, uh, that I, my application to, to join the efforts has been considered and I had a direction, a directive, I think they called it, some <laughs> big word, to report at 0900, no, 0915 hours at Tikawiti on a certain date, I can't remember the date, so I had to ask me, Dad, what's this 0915 hours? Is that a code? I thought it was a code, you know, because in those early days of the war days, there was all sorts of advertising. Is your journey necessary? Uh, don't no, loose talk, this type of thing. no loose talk. You weren't allowed to do this, that, and the other thing. And I thought it was something to do with a code to re- report to Tikawiti. Now, Tikawiti was, you know, King Country township like Mananui was there in those days where they'd shifted down from Owakuni down to Mananui and uh, to get to Teekawiti I had to catch a train at half past seven and half past two in the morning to get 67 miles away so and we already lived four and a half mile away from the station so I hopped on this bike. We only had a family bike. I don't know who owned it. My dad owned it, I suppose. It was a hand-me-down thing. It was full into bits. I hopped on this bike to catch this train and peddled away there, and the fog was pretty thick. Usually a big fog goes in, in the King Country up those at that time of the year. And I got down to what they call the Matapuna Bridge. And the Matapuna Bridge is a combined rail and traffic bridge with a water, or mm. porter, or water, I suppose you call him, a gatekeeper, that. he had to open and shut the gate whenever the train went through And nor did any help anybody that bro- broke his law to get in. I got to this gate and it was closed. And I heard a train toot. I said, strike, I'll catch that train. So I picked the bike up, threw it over the top of the gate, climbed over the top, pedalled me way across the other side. And fair on this gatekeeper, he wouldn't let me through the other end. <laughs> he was going to have me arrested on the spot and I had to show him all the gear, all the details. I tried to, to explain to him what I was on his majesty's service. <laughs> this big letter said on his majesty's service and that's what I'm on. So I said I'm going to join the Air Force. I said how do I know that? So he looked at it, got his little lantern out and so peered at it closely. And then he relented then, and let, but he looked, before he let open that gate, he looked upwards and downwards to make sure nobody was watching him. Because I'd, I'd already broken the law and he was aiding in a better in those days. That was a typical public servant attitude. The gates was to be shut five minutes before and five minutes after, sort of thing. But he let me through and I pedaled away down there and I get a bit further down and I heard the train toot again and I stood up on the pedals. Bang, chain came off. Well, drive a bit of mess. So I just got off this bike, chucked it over the hedge just as a it all, I can't fix it out. So I started walking in a car. I saw lights coming towards me. I got out, waved it down. Now this is the part that uh, I haven't told the family very much about. How did you go to war, Dad? <laughs> well, believe me or not, I went. I was in the dung before I got started. <laughs> I laid this vehicle down, and it wasn't until it stopped I realised what it was. <laughs> it was the night cart. <laughs> so I went, went to war in a night cart. He got me to the railway station to catch this train. It, it was all right once we started moving, but by oh, the power, speeding. Anyway, that's that's how I became suitable material for the air force. Got to Tikawiti eventually in the train. I was, I was, uh, 0915 hours, and I got there at about, must oh, have been six or seven o'clock, and hung about there. And the fog was thick enough to cut a. You need a knife and a fork to get through it. There, Dinkum. At any rate, it so happened that at 0915 hours, I was the only one at the address given to me. Eventually somebody turned up. He was part of the committee that was to interview. but he didn't have the key. <laughs> Nobody. There was three, three coming to, to attend to do, put me through the paces and see if I was suitable. Eventually we got, got into the building, it was a stone cold, he got somebody went home or got hold of somebody that did have a key, so we got the place open and got set to. It was all over in about 10 minutes, <laughs> so that's how I finished up uh, reporting forthwith. <laughs> okay. That's okay. how I joined the Air Force, I joined it in way out in the King County. no any no, no, no different.
0: No. Well, could we um, jump forward a bit now to when you just got onto the Hawker Hines?
1: Oh yeah, from there, well, from there it was a simple matter. Uh, I joined the Air Force, I had to do a pre-entry course, that's right, that's the pre-entry course. Stuff. And the, the time you've done through that, you're, you're equivalent to a university entrance. It was matriculation and standard, but I did that in uh, spare time. <laughs> and eventually got to uh, Harker. Uh, uh, well, we, yeah, we went to... A, we had to go to um, One Tree Hill in Auckland on a, a preliminary... I don't know what they called it, but there was... Uh, they had to wait your turn to be called in to the Air Force days, but they still had to put you through your pace and a bit of military training, and we did our training on uh, One Tree Hill. Marching here and marching there, and we went out on big name maneuvers. And that maneuvers day, we had to cart all your gear, rifle, bedding, and tent, everything you owned. There was nothing left behind. We took off, we got a trucks. They took us out in a truck and dumped us out on this farm away out the back of Auckland somewhere. And um, that was part of our maneuver. Our job was to penetrate the and an imaginary enemy force that was holding a hill over there. We had to capture that hill and keep out of sight. There was, it was occupied. So one of the other teams was selected to stop us. You know, you that was pros and cons. And you had to be able to sneak up on this hill without being seen. Well, they call that manoeuvres. Well, to me, it was a simple matter because in the King County, We'd snuck up on rabbits and hares and deer stalking, pig hunting, caught trout and fish and tickled the trout too without a hook or any damn thing. In other words, we knew how to to treat nature naturally. Part of it. We became part of nature to capture this hillbend. My, the platoon that I was in listened to me eventually. I said, no, you're not going to, no, no, get, get your head down, get your head down, get the shade down, get on the you know, we'd, We managed to capture the place and be back again well ahead of time. Anyway, on the way back, we did the, this manoeuvre, camped the night or some damn thing, I've forgotten now. And on the way back from that manoeuvre, the trucks never came to pick us up. We had to walk back, cart all this stuff back, wow. Got as far as, I think it was Green Lane or some area out that way, somewhere, the tram line. I didn't know Auckland at all in those days. But I saw all these people waiting on the side of the footpath there for it, and the tram lines, and the tram come chucking along and they all got on. And I nudged the chap next to me I said, you Are you on? He said, What do you mean? I said, Give a ride. <laughs> we, we snuck in behind the, the cloud. Hobbed down, went to the guard at the tra- at the tramp. I said we've got to get back to get the tea on. <laughs> it's because we're all tramping back to, to, to Green Lane or where well, you've got That's uh, you know, that place we stayed. Uh, I forgot what the park was, uh, park on Mount Eden. Uh, it'll come to me shortly what the name of it was. Um, was it Cornwall Park? Corn Cornwall, yeah, Cornwall Park. But that wasn't the name they gave us. Cornwall, it was Cornwall Park. Uh it'll come shortly, funny name, but anyway, Cornwall Park was, that it had a big stone wall around it, yeah, because I hid my shoes behind there, oh, boots, <laughs> big yeah. boots, and put my shoes on and went to town, <laughs> played the wag. But anyway, we got a, we jumped the tra- tram, the tram said, put your gear in the corner there, and uh, so we did that, bent, you kept bending down till we went right past this big column of, just slugging away, in the way, all their gear, marching back, get back to um, to the park entrance. We, they let, he let us off as close as he could. He couldn't get right to it. He, he gave us the instruction how to get there. What do, a couple of hundred yards up the road and find the gateway. Got to the gate. And of course, the guard wanted to know how. how well we have to we said, Oh, we've been sent to here to get the tea on. Oh, we've well, we got to get cracking in here to got so long. so we shut up there, had a good hot shower and <laughs> cooks had already got the tea ready. So. so that's but anyway, do you remember the who was the chap that um left his copy book and said called him gentleman of the air force? Oh um I've heard Sir, Cyril Newell, wasn't it? I think I, I think General, you're right. Yeah. I think you're right. Anyway, he uh, he came to visit this bunch of blo- ex-airforce, well, budding Air Force type, we were, only, we were an ex-budding types, so waiting for to get into the Air Force intake. And uh, somehow or other he might have heard about uh, you know, the sort of guys they wanted they wanted so they could think. So <laughs> i finished up, I only about five or six weeks at the Big and One Tree Hill and I was on my way to, to Rotorua to Rotorua, it was called the ITW, which is uh, the initial training wing. Now, I hadn't been to Rotorua before, but the pong and the stink and the smell was bad enough. We, stood out, we were domiciled at a place that at one of the hotels had been taken over. I think Brent's hotel was the headquarters for the main body of Air Force trainees. At the sleeping quarters we took o- they took over anybody that had accommodation and we were staying there was a bunch of us, about half a dozen, I suppose, domiciled at a place called Hinemoa, Hinemoa House, I think they called it. It was just an ordinary boarding house with a two storied balcony and one thing or another. Nothing flash. Meals were all right. But what irked me more than anything, we had a, Keep polishing all these buttons all the time. Polish the buttons, and they said, you got them polished and they big of sulfur sulfur in the air and tarnished them again and growled at The discipline on that side of it didn't appeal to me in the least. I I didn't mind ordinary discipline to train you to do things, but senseless stuff, senseless, it meant nothing, and it was common sense that you're wasting your time. To me, I thought it was just stupidity. And here we were polishing brass buttons and as soon as we got outside, they'd be finished. Stupid. Uh, but anyway, we had to put up with it. We had to do it. Tramped all around Rotorua for about three months. It was three weeks or three months now. I'd have to look a bit. Well, I didn't keep a diary, really. We didn't get log books until we got the flying days. So I don't know how long we really at Rotorua. It wasn't that long. It was cold and miserable and frost, tramp. The best part was when we knocked off, we'd go to a white swim, <laughs> it cost us nothing. Uh. And then, now to get from there, got sent to Rebmuera, Re- posted overseas. We were, we did, we'd done all our homework, passed out our certificates, or passed out suitable. We did training for Morse code and signals and all that type of thing. The theory of flight, the theory of this and the theory of that. Navigation did a lot of that. It was high powered stuff, and I don't know whether I could do it today, but I suppose I'd get there uh, somehow. <laughs> today they could press a button and they'd take the answer. We didn't, we had to figure out the answer. It was a different, different way of teaching people to do things. And I don't regret it, I don't regret it a single minute. Uh, now, to get to the Air Force flying days, from that point onwards, my life turned upside down. We were given 10 days final leave. All our paybooks had been changed to dollars and cents, American dollars, Canadian. We knew all our Canadian coinage. Hadn't used it, but we were supposed to know it. <laughs> uh, didn't have a penny left of New Zealand funds. <laughs> had this 10 days leave, and all the locals gave me farewells and send-offs and presentations, family gave me a fountain pen, somebody gave me a wallet, nothing in it. (laughs) And I've still got those sort of things, the pen I think disappeared in years as the family took over. (laughs) Did some I want that, okay, let them have it. I never never got it back. Doesn't matter, I didn't want it. And um... uh, you yeah, then I got a telegram, and it was a bit strange, the wording. In those early days, it was sort of a hush-hush climate in the community. Idle talk was dangerous. Uh, is your journey necessary? You don't do this and you don't do that. Everything had to have some uh, sort of value given to it, whether it was... For the good of the country, you know, the, we were at war and we didn't know it. We had no gear. It seemed a silly war, really. And if to get to war, we had to go overseas to do it. Uh, it wasn't New Zealand war at all. It was, a, it was England. Where England went, we went, or some jolly thing, words to that effect. And we were only young fellows, just virtually straight from school. We didn't know any different. We did as we were told. So right, I get this telegram to report forthwith a word I'd never heard of in my life. I said, what the hell is this fourth I said, that's me dad. She'd have to ask the both of us. So there again, what's uh, this forthwith caper? I said, what would happen if I went without? <laughs> Nobody could answer that one. So anyway, you know, with my fourth, I went. And, and I got to Arrakia. And uh, from then on, my life just changed altogether. And, uh, we were budding Airfo they gave us a, a funny little they call it a forage hat, I think they call it, that as budding aircrew, we had to wear this little white strip of flash in the in the, set into one of the seams of the cap the forage cap to indicate that we were I don't know whether we were special people or not, but I don't know we were in a special training, but anyway we we knew which, whose hat it was, <laughs> you didn't get mixed up. <laughs> That's about the good of that. We spent so, about three months, I suppose, at Oahu. But I uh, remember now that has was being, still being built. There was concrete trucks tearing up and down, there was shingle, and they had a great big quarry set up by the bridge there, by the, the Bulls Bridge. The Bulls Bridge had been built had been built but I think they must have built the quarry for that purpose and they built built all the concrete runways at Ahakia and the the hangars. There's a lot of concreting being done there from the Rangatika River. It was a a busy place and uh, we did a lot of theory at Ahakia but we were uh, transferred from there by truck they called it a bus. It was a truck with a couple of wooden saw in it and a canvas top over the back of it. Three three-ton truck took us into a place called Milson, and that's where the Palmerston North airfield is now. And it was a farm in those days, a big farm. We were to do our tr- flying training there rather than at uh, Ohakia because of the congestion. Uh, some of the pilots. They were still being trained too. I was trained as a, as a wireless operator air gunner at that stage. And some of the pilots, they were still learning their job, same as us. <laughs> but we survived. My first introduction to that place at Milson was when we arrived and somebody lifted up the corner, we turned the corner off the main drag and went into the farm gates. Here's this uh, aeroplane upside down, or nose down, into the mud, up against a fence. And we'd heard her later that uh, the ground was so soft that uh, he had to do a ground loop or put on all the brakes to stop, and she nosed over and he buried his nose in the ground. Was a chap called Pat Malloy. I actually flew with him later on, I was just looking at my logbook just now, and I said his names. they were mentioned quite often. So it probably didn't deter me altogether from going to the Air Force. What's a prank or two? But I, I'd had a few knockbacks over the years—full of horses, full of trees, full of a waterfall, and, you know, jumped off cliffs, and all sorts of funny things like that—and still came up. So accidents never entered my mind. You know, they just didn't. Just, there was no danger. I, I didn't have any danger of going in the air. Even though I'd seen Kingsford Smith fly, well if he can do it, I can do it, sort of. That attitude.
0: <laughs> and your first flight would have been in a the hind then, would it?
1: Yeah, yeah it was. First, first, yeah, the very first flight was in a hind. Uh, I've got a lot up here, and what here? What the uh, hell is it? No, I haven't got, I haven't got my Hawker, early Hawker-Hind stuff in here. Um, yes I have, yes I have. Sorry about that, it's a, it's an, I went in an Oxford. Now my very first flight was in an Oxford 258 by a pilot officer at Glanville to do some splash grouping. So we must have shot off in a blink in Oxford to fire a few rounds to get the feel of a gun. Yep. And that was on the 7th of September of 1942. But from there on, things did change. We did a bit of this. And my first flight in a Hawker Hind. Oh, Davy Rowcliffe. 1330 hours. Hawker Hind 1548 was the number. Flying Officer Rowcliffe. Now, I got to know that chap so well that he was one of my, I would say without doubt, one of the Three best pilots I ever flew with right throughout the war years. Davy Glowcliffe, just bluntly, could fly those Hawker Hines like a white butterfly. Now, if you look at a white butterfly, it doesn't stay straight and level. It's always ducking and diving all over the sky. I would say Davy would have survived any dogfight, because I went in several dogfight trainings with him. From that point onwards, but I very I had realized that Davy was the first one in a hawker behind for me. And I had a lot of respect for him for, for years later. And came against him all over grave, Years later. And, and we flew him up there. <laughs> Small world. Doesn't matter. Okay. I oh, sorry I interrupted. That's that's right.
0: Um, and so you were doing air gunnery practice and that sort of thing.
1: Oh um... yeah, yeah. Well, See, Hawker, New Zealand wasn't ready for We had no gear. The Hawker Hines that we flew, I've looked into the history of them, and as far as I can understand, they came from uh, India. They'd been flying up and down the Khyber Pass. Where Afghanistan Donnybrook's going on now, that Donnybrook was still going on way back in 1936 37. These Hawker Hines were tearing up and down there trying to control things. How stupid can you get? The world's crazy. They war, they won't fix anything with a war. What they're doing over there now is no different, except that they don't ride camels. <laughs> yeah, however, that's somebody else's problem. Or is it? I don't know. I've spoken to young fellows, today. Be careful if you're going to go to Afghanistan. What are you going to go there for? Right. Whose war is it? You look after New Zealand, that's your job. It's your job, you're the interviewer. <laughs> you look after this country, that's what we've heard. So I have got off the track again. Yeah, yeah.
0: how long were you at Milson for before uh, you? Oh, uh,
1: not very long, not very long. Long enough to qualify to be suitable. And then there was three of us, four, four of us. No, hold on, out of that, f- I've mentioned about the 14 of us got that telegram to go forthwith to Alhaka. There's 14 of us out of that bunch, out of about, say, 150 odd people going to Canada, there's 14 of us who selected to stay behind and get cracking. And when you look back on those days now, why? My summing up was that, from this is in hindsight, of course, now. I didn't know anything in those early days, we just did as we were told. But when you look back into those years now, I think that the authorities of the day, New Zealand authorities of the day, were told by the Americans that America couldn't do any more for us either and New Zealand would have to pull its finger out and do a bit more to look after itself. It took too long to send chaps like myself and mates Over to Canada to be trained and then we bring them back again. They need somebody now. We'll supply the plane. We'll supply this, that, and the other. And they did too. So that's how I put it together now, those days, why. What happened? But we did our thing, and uh, from Milson, once we qualified, we were suitable to do the job that was needed. Three of us, Jock Leaf, he came from Hokianga, Jock. Jock and I became pretty good mates. Jock was a Maori by tradition or trade. We were, that was his nationality, really. His father was a, a captain or we a major. I'm not sure which. what his top rank was, but he was uh, well up in the Maori battalion. And he got killed overseas somewhere. And Jock got railroaded home in the middle of the. Campaign up in Solomon. It's Jock and I and Bert Douglas. It three of us. Were sent from Milton up to Wangarae to start up a squadron up there. Uh, new pilots came. Some of the pilots we'd flown with Milton too, too. We were sent there too. They're all young fellows. <laughs> we set up. It was about, oh, about seven or eight pilots, I suppose, and seven gunners to set up this squadron. And our job there was to, uh, well, look after New Zealand's interest, because in, there was definitely a threat that New Zealand could be invaded too. So Japan was rampart, it was rampant. Singapore fell over. Well, look, they had their guns pointed out to sea, and the Japs come in behind them. What's the matter what with them? Wake the your ideas up a bit. It was an unnatural type of warfare. And uh, well, MacArthur got sent to, out of the Philippines, he went to Aussie. Darwin got bombed. So it was a different world. The war was, wasn't was going well for New Zealand and anybody, really. We were on a, a bad streak. That's how it all came about. That uh, We had to look after New Zealand first. And all we had was these Hawkeyes, I think, as I said, they came from uh, up and down the, the, the RAF had had them up on uh, Khyber Pass and with the new new planes in England of course they'd keep them there and we'd get all the stuff that was left over. Uh, Vickers Vincents and the Wildebeests and two wing, double wing things you know. Uh, to, to, today they look obsolete and out of date and they probably are but my word they were they were aeroplanes they did what they had to do that Hawker Hind was so versatile for its day. We could outmaneuver Kitty o- Kittyhawks. Well, we did, did Kittyhawks from Ardmore. They were trained at Ardmore, and before they went up to the Pacific, they had to uh, do an exercise and capture Dargaville, for instance. Our job was to stop them. And so we'd be stooging around up in the sky, eight and a half, ten thousand feet. Hiding in hide and seek in the clouds, waiting for these kiddyhawks to come past. <laughs> all done with camera guns. It was all camera gunning, and uh, we never got shot down. We were too manoeuvrable. We could turn inside a kiddyhawk. boat to kitty have come diving out of the sky at you. All you do is dodge, and you can take four miles to turn around and come back. So, did you ever shoot any kiddyhawks down with the camera gun? Oh yeah, I got my. Quota, <laughs> you might call it, I suppose. Uh, but it was. It was the only way we could learn. And the only way they could, the pilots could learn too, don't forget, you know. It was a bit like cowboys and Indians, that type of thing, but uh, with a more serious effect. And you were, you were marked on it, you know. You were graded, I suppose, as called it, you, whether you're good or bad, or whether you can shoot straight or not, the camera... As the elders say, the camera doesn't lie, but uh, I think sometimes it did. <laughs> but the drug shooting, there was another one too. If we get back onto this, it was part of the training side of it, we did that up there at Walgrey too, because we didn't have a lot of training in uh, guns and things, the actual firing. We did a lot out in the ocean, a lot of it. Uh, talking about the drone and the Vickers Vin- Vincents. The Vickers Vincent was a huge biplane, bigger than the Hawker Hine, big clumsy looking thing. But I think the Hawker Hine would be more versatile. It a bit smaller, but faster. Did the job, we could carry bombs. And One of my training days we um, had to do a bit of drone shooting. And they told me the pilot's name was McCain. Now, this is a story, this is a side, toy, side toy, story. Years later, I'm, I was lucky to draw, draw a marble to get to the Solomon's there on that uh, Goodwill Tour that Mrs Clark shouted at us. It was a long way to go to turn around, but we did it. Went up then turned around and came home. But on, uh, Welling- in Wellington, a big ceremony took place. There was a big. March past and all this sort of thing, and they took us for a big tour through the city. We all climbed on the army trucks and vehicles. I clambered up onto this whacking great big monstrosity of a vehicle, found myself a seat, sitting alongside a chap. He nudged his mate aside, pushed him along a bit more, gave him a bit of room, we introduced each other. And uh, I said, What were you doing during the day? He said, Oh, I was in Corsairs. He's a great big, he's bigger than you, big fella. He wasn't in the early days, but he's got big over the years. And uh, I thought he was a bit big for, for a course but he wasn't. And then you had, uh, he gave me his name, McCabe. He said I, said, I remember McCabe, but I said, he flew Vickers um, Vincent. He said, that was me. He said, we drove, and, was my, and his mate was alongside him. There's two of them that used to do these, to go around all the different places towing these drugs for us to shoot at. So I said to him, I said, you actually survived! (laughs) He he could have got shot down even before he could have left the country. (laughs) something with Corsairs, because I knew a lot of the Corsair boys too, you see. (laughs) That's a little sideline. We're sitting in a truck, we meet each other about 60, 70 years later. (laughs) Small world, you know. they could write a book about some of the names that crop up when in the crossover. Mm-hmm. Getting back to uh, what we did at in the Hawker Hines at Onirahi. We, well, it was Onirahi, actually. It was, it was only a farm, again, that had been taken over by so, the public. Sorry, say that again. Hmm? What was that? Sorry, say that again. The property was a farm taken over by the Public Works, under the Public Works Act, with the, shifted the houses and made, a, made an airstrip. It was a grass paddock, there was no tar seal. There was no such thing as tar seal. Uh, our huts were just little sheds underneath the pine trees. Uh, way down off the field, too. we had to walk to work, <laughs> up the hill a bit. Not much, not far, but we were only young fellows. we'd be up there in a couple of minutes. <laughs> and uh, there was an occasion there, uh, a little bit of realism, even though we were, like, well, the work we were doing was like being in a flying home guard, really. It wasn't dangerous in the sense that the enemy's going to pop up and shoot you down. There was none of that. There was no likelihood of that. Don't be so, it couldn't happen. I'm to believe in Murphy's law, if it's possible, it will. And uh, anyway, it, uh, it so happened, I got woken up one morning, early in the morning, it was still dark, got woken up. Well, well you, It was Davey Rowcliffe. This chip, Davey Rowcliffe, wanted me to get He's gonna, we're gonna. There'd been a report of a strange ship up off Cape Brett, I think it was. Cape Brett, or the hen and chickens up in that area. And uh, we, we were to go out there and locate it. So we got, got <laughs> the mechanics were all on. We've been woken up, they got the old airplane out for us, everything gassed up, the whole thing. And I looked, and she, it seemed to be drooping. There were 250 pound bombs on each side. So we took off with these 250 pound bombs, it was lumbered into the sky, took off away to blazes out over the ocean, up and down, getting low on gas when we came back. Couldn't find it just as well, too. But I was all that. I can remember as clear as anything, if we drop one of those bombs, the other one's going to flip us over. And I was a bit concerned. <laughs> I'm sitting in the back, hoping old Davey would know what to do. <laughs> He's the pilot, I'm just sitting there <laughs> with my little gun. I don't know how to... Oh, you would take two extra pans of... In those days, our ammunition was in pans, a circular drum from a Lewis gun. He said, bring a couple of extra pans with you, because you need them. I said, this is for real. So, OK, I've got these extra pans of food. There was nowhere to put them. I'd lay them on the floor. So um, I had them. But um, when we came back, the wind had changed and we had to land on the short runway. Now, coming in with a load still loaded up with these bombs, uh, we landed on the short runway and she wasn't going to stop. We just kept trundling, 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 you know, the extra weight and extra speed because you had to fly over it, start a little bit more revs and so on to land it with the load on. We were heading for the town hall. Now, the town hall, when they built this airfield, they just fenced off part of the township. It was only a little village, and the town hall was part of our... Uh, well, assembly hall, I suppose you could call it. If a, if a station was required to assemble in one place on a wet day, it'd be in the hall. And that was it. <laughs> we are heading there to blow the thing up. But anyway, old davy you know, he stood up on this thing and reminded me of that upended, ended hawker behind it, Milson. Same thing. It was a dread. I don't know why. It was always a fear that the damn things could nose over. He gets up on one leg and he puts one, and we did a wheelie jammed the brakes on one wheel and she spun around and the wingtip dipped and we ploughed a big 360 degree circle in the, in the turf right then, survived. <laughs> so that's a little bit of the realism of the war side of
0: it. Do, do, do you remember other um, accidents there? I know Tim Murray had a bad one on Tim, his first
1: flight. Tim, crashed at night, coming in a night night flying. We did a lot of night flying. Uh, that was the... No, the worst one was when and Murray Gray, I think Murray Gray was the one that pranged with Tim. It was. Yeah, now I come to think of it. Yeah, Murray and Tim pranged on the end of the runway coming in over at night. Now, I don't know how long afterward, but there was a, a bomber's bond campaigned by Bombers Bond and Murray Gray and Lucky Smith. Lucky Smith came back from the Middle East for, on, on uh, well, I don't know whether it was time leave or what, but something, I think it was bad health or something. It was two of them, Murray, Jeff Moore and Murray and uh, Lucky Smith came back. Now, Murray Gray took off in this tiger moth. They flew up and down The main street of Wangarei did a split-ass turn at the top and came back again. Now, a tiger moth, petrol is in the top wing, and it's gravity-fed. The fact that he flew up and flipped upside down, no petrol could get to the engine. She she lost revs. see. His engine cut out on him because there was no feed. Upside down, he did a flip. I had to do a flip round of sideways, but to flip over, that's what happened there. And that you went straight into the concrete wall and killed both of them. Now I had to look after the uh, funeral arrangements on that. I was the sergeant on the funeral for it because we both belonged to the same church type of thing. And uh, I remember that as clear as anything, I I hate drill and I hate being a showpiece. to me, it was as bad as the accident to be, to be involved in that side of it, you know. So you asked me a sort of a question which brings back sad memories, but there were bad times. And it, the day it happened, the day that they happened, in, we, were, we weren't in fly, on flying duties at all. The siren went, that's right. And in those days it was a ritual. If anybody had a prank, you immediately got airborne. The whole squadron, bit no of what they were doing, where they were on leave or anything, if they heard that siren, back and get there. You know, we're all in the air again in about five minutes. You know, planes taken off all over the place. So we got airborne, and, and I think it's a it's a custom. In England fighter boys over there had it. they they, they would. So they wouldn't lose their nerve, I think, was mainly the reason for it. I'm still one of those blokes that look for reasons why, you know. That was, to my way of summing it up, it's mainly they don't lose lose their their nerve. I can remember that being scrambled up in the air smartly. Oh, another time, it was a dangerous time, and I flew with a chap, I bet i give his name, he got killed later on. and He should never have been a pilot stop full stop all davy let's call him davy he wasn't Davy Rowcliffe at all not davy and uh, he was one of those pilots who was conscience driven I suppose to do his bit and be good at it uh, he'd read a book or read the book what does the book say he didn't he wasn't flying with a seat in pants. In other words, you're not natural. It wasn't a natural fly. The other pilots looked like I could fly anywhere with them. If they were good, they were. They flew by instinct, but not Davy. Davy would have to puzzle it all out. How to do this. At any rate, we were doing formation flying. Landing in formation, taken off in formation. Why, I don't know. I didn't see any sense in it personally, but that was part of the training, was to train the pilots, I suppose. And anyway, we took off and we we're coming into land fair dinkum, we nearly landed on top of the flight commander. He was in charge, so like coming in threes, flight commander first and you had one on each side. And instead of Davy throttling back we came in, he, he gives a rev up and we shoot in front of him. Next thing we nearly got land on mm-hmm. Nick, Hunter was the flight commander. Boy, did he give her the gun! He ripped up, zoomed under, got his wingtip under ours. He could fly like a butterfly, as I said, like, like Davey could too. He put the wingtip and forced us back up into the sky. And then he gave poor old Davey a lesson on how to fly a Hawkeye, high. I just calmly got my parachute, hooked him on his harness one of those observer. Uh, observer suits, and you hook them on your chest. And I just sat down and I said, no, if we're going to do silly buggers like this, I'll go over the side. <laughs> you know, he could have easily pranged us. He was in that sort of a mood. I mean, Hunter was no mess, he didn't mess around with him. I like, thought, gee, no. But, uh, that was a dangerous one or two. Two dangerous ones there. The other one was with this other Dave again. It two Dave. Now, I thought the Dave, shouldn't have been a pilot. We're away up 90 mile beach area, way up past Dygall, past the Hokianga, way to blazes up there, and the northerly mist came in. You get a northerly sea, near the northerly, comes in off the sea, and it closed in. And uh, St- Davey starts to head inland. See? He was going to get, I know what he was going to do. He was going to get onto the, onto the railway line and follow the railway line home. Wow, I know what that country's like up there. and You've got to be down low to do that. It's not if you could see it, but in a mist, once you got into that mist, it was a finish. We, 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 we wouldn't have gone home that night. I tapped him and I shouted. We had no voice contact in those Hawker Hines. You had to shout at each other or pass him a note. I yelled out in his ear, leaned over, shouted. He couldn't quite hear what I was getting at, so I wrote it down. Follow the surf line. Follow surf line. Follow the surf line down the cape. And that's who eventually did that. before We came back. And we wouldn't have made it that day. It was bad news, you know. You asked me about those sort of, sort of dangers. Those are the things that stick in my mind. And, you know, Low flying was all right. But the best flyer of the lot in those ones is Davy Rowcliffe, as I said before. you could fly it like a butterfly. And I remember one instance over a place called Nungaroo. Way up at Nungaroo is on the west, uh, it's the eastern side of North Auckland, Nungaroo, and it's uh, sand dunes and that we flew over this bunch of people, I think they were nudists, I think guys <laughs> zoomed over the The other day we did a split-ass turn and we zoomed back again. You know, got down behind the zoom, and came snuck up over the top. We come up over this se- end, zoomed it down. And I'm sitting in the back and I look out here, we doshed over the ocean. There were three tracks in the water. Three tracks, because the hawker had fixed undercart. There were two of the wheels and the ra- third one in the middle was the wash from the prop. That's yeah. how close we were it's low fly, <laughs> and we survived <laughs> but he he didn't lose control that was a dicey one
0: were were you there the other day that um Tim was telling me about an English pilot on the squadron who um did a low pass and actually hit Tim in the back
1: with the with the um wing of the aircraft? I'm not aware of that, okay. But I wouldn't it, say it didn't
0: happen. He said, he said everybody was sort of watching him do this low display. And um, everyone ducked as he came over. And Tim ducked too late and scraped up his back. And
1: well, it could have been, I wouldn't be, I would not be, I wouldn't have. It's a hook. was capable of doing it in good hands. But in this other first day that I mentioned, no show, he, he would he should get the book out. <laughs> the book says don't do it. He wouldn't do it. <laughs> but the other day we wrote, he could. He could do those things. Harry Vent took two feet off his wingtip coming in over Wongarag on a power line. Somebody else cut off power to a cow cocky's uh, cow shed, <laughs> met with the wrath of the CEO when he came home. <laughs> Lou Gates was our boss man. Well, little incidents like that were low flying, yes. And there was another instance where, uh, and once again with Davey Rowcliffe, I was with him, we way up north of Auckland, way by um, There's a uh, radio mast, very similar to what New Plymouth's got out here at uh, Waiwakaia. Uh, Harwara had one down off of Harwara there somewhere too. They had a very similar type of radio mast for transmitting the, the local station. And uh, we were down at, um, well, Telegraph pole Height. That was our job. Our job was to count the military traffic, the number of cars and trucks and motorbikes and military activity on the roads. We were zooming along there and I looked okay, not know. Next thing I heard, the, <laughs> we flipped We saw this blinking radio mast and I swear to this day that we flew through the guy ropes. I do, uh, I honestly think that that's what happened. We couldn't have, how could we fit through those? In a, Never, ever had an opportunity to go back and have another look until about, uh, what would it be, 15 years ago now, my son was up hooking and we went up to see him. And uh, I stopped on the road to have a look and, you know, I'll tell you what, the top guy is missing. It's never been replaced. There's a top guy wire on the roadside is not there. The other one on the inside is. And I reckon that's the one we must have taken it out. You couldn't possibly fly through those ropes, no, so there's a couple of dangers and still survived. <laughs> it sounds like the Hind was a
0: pretty tough aircraft um, in terms of being able to have accidents like that taking
1: the wingtip oh, off. Oh yeah, it was, it was versatile. It wasn't plastic, <laughs> it was tubular. No, no it wasn't, it was angle iron I think. Uh, The American stuff was tubular and all rounded and nicely smooth, didn't get shaved. But the old Hawker Hind, I think from memory now, was um, more of an angular type material and covered with uh, a cloth, linen, and then painted. The paint was (laughs) thicker than the cloth. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but it was a sturdy plane in that respect. It was done, it was made for the job. being an army co-op squadron, our job was, well I suppose to put it in a nutshell, we carried on where they knocked off in 1918. You know, if you read the stories of the uh, Royal Flying Corps, you know, i forgot forgotten what's that, Trigger, was a, there was a TV series there for Captain Trigger. Do you remember that now? Wings. Uh, that was the type of work we were doing. Dropping supplies, landing out on the the grass fields and things like that, a lot of low flying stuff, miles of it, so we did a lot of that, we still came through it, it. I said one day at time. that time that I was telling you about uh, when we followed the surf line, we must have been low that day because when we got back to base, Bundle of sort of sort of seaweed types off the beach, <laughs> wrapped around one of the wheels, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, um, another one, I can't remember, I think it was Len Hutton, I think, uh, Jock, Jock Leaf was with, his gunner for him. They came back from uh, a, a flip over Hokianga. Now i was thinking back now, it was Jock's bit of, bit of ground, he got a bit of section up there. <laughs> on the Hokianga, Omaapuri, a place called Omaapuri. But until just the last few years, I realised that Omaapuri wasn't that lake Omaapuri. There's another little township called Omaapuri just along from Opanone, oh, about about from here to Fitzroy, a couple of miles away, less than that. That's called him um- and that's what Jock said. I thought when he said they caught a tree at Omaapuri, I thought he meant by the lake. <laughs> They come home with a big pine cone and they winged it. So, low flying was the thing to, it could, it could be done. In good hands they could come home with it too. I don't remember anybody being killed or anything like that, no. We did a lot of dangerous jobs but got away with it. But as I said before, they they were good pilots and they all became Fighter oh yes, there was one dicey one, I can not talk, with a chap called Dublock, Dublock Cameron, he was our f- deputy flight commander. Now that man was the oldest man in the, on the station, he was actually ex-Spanish ex Civil War chap, Cameron, Bob Cameron, I put him in the book here. He and I used to fly a lot together too. We do a lot of gunnery exercises. We went out over Bream bream Head, is it Bream Head? Yep, over grey Heads. You've got big towering rocks and slightly upstream from there is a bit of a bay. We used to do our gunnery practice there. And the procedure was for the observer, the gunner, the chap at the back, dropped a can of aluminium powder into the ocean and that was the target. So I dropped this can of aluminium powder as requested or as required by the book. And <laughs> dropped it in and picked. And it, when it hits the water it spews a little big circle. And uh, Dublock, I keep calling him Dublock because that's what I called him, uh, he had these we, we had nothing as far as eye goggles. We had uh, sort of elastic covered dust goggles you have on a motorbike sort of thing. <laughs> they fly off the first time you use them. Uh, Dublock had these ones from the RAF. They were real things, angler type things. And he, filled in, he had his turn and had a fire at it. And he looked over and he called around and yelled out, Did you see that, Sergeant? I was only a Sergeant then. He said, Where did they go? He said, Oh, we'll have another go. I said, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. I waved him down. I said, Don't do it. said, give him the indicator he's flying through the prop. We had 13, was either thirteen or fourteen holes in that propeller. Wooden props, you see, they were wooden props. And he was he was flying through the prop. Fair deacon, we staggered home. Low level, you staggered up over the hill, I didn't dare go to didn't, didn't speed it up, he skipped. We landed up the field and he taxied up to the inn by the where the armourer's shed was. He got out, he never even took his parachute off or anything, just waddled out there with a big, big parachute dangling behind his, behind his backside, and said he stir the pregnancy daylights out of those armorers. I was only a young fellow out of school, and I thought I had good marks in the Queen's English, or King's English. I did, yeah, I had good marks in English. <laughs> and I heard words that day that I never knew existed. And the the old public works hut that they had, a shed for the armoury gear and tool, tool shed, it was just trembling, shaking, had, had um, louver windows, and they all rattled. He was thumping the floor and he was laying down the law. And from what I can remember, he was blaming them for endangering my life, not his. He'd been through the Spanish War and if he got got the chops over yet. Virtually the, coming towards the end of the time at, uh, at uh, Onirahi, um, the, the threat of invasion had receded, and there was more important things to do. The Japs, the uh, were having their troubles up the uh, Kokoda Trail, is it? Up in New Guinea. And our, we were sent to Gisborne with the promise that there'd be TBF aircraft made available for us for torpedo work. So we shot off to, over to, to Gisborne. And the, the, the grapevine, I suppose you'd call it, the, the guff was that where they were expecting 33 and a third percent losses. That didn't go down too well with us at all. We were not to have any final leave. We were going to go straight to Gisborne, do this pressure course. And by that time, the planes were here and we'd we shoot over to get the Aussies a hand. That was the guts of the changeover. close, close Anyway, get to Gisborne, learn how to use the things you shoot do. Right, we got to Gisborne, alright, but, but before we went, no final leave, bugged us. A chap called Red Hannah, he was our oldest man. He was, in, he got a DFM later on for shooting down the Japs and that. It, so it was a good shot, just to think. He had the furthest to go. So we worked out how long it would take him to go home. He lived at Winton, a place called Winton, out by, in McEyver somewhere. Uh, I had to go to the middle of the North Island. Uh, but Douglas had to go Putaru, which is not far away too. We all had different distances. So we made an agreement we would meet seven days hence in Palmerston North Railway Station. And just take French leave, give us time to go home and say, say for Red to go all that way home and back again, of course, it did take ten days, you see, it would take a bit longer. So we. He would need that extra time, so based on his travel arrangement, we would meet at uh, Palmerston North. No leave pass, nothing. We just disappeared, and we did. We we could have been court-martialed. There's no doubt about it, but when you look back, but that's all history now, and I can disclose it now, because even the wing commander, Geoffrey Bentley, remember that? I knew him as a corporal at Onirahi, and he became the senior rank, not probably an officer, he wasn't an officer. He was the senior rank as a corporal in charge of the break All the pilots had gone, all the CO, the adjutant, the whole lot had all been posted off, all these boys, all the air crew had been posted off and Jeff had to answer signals from Wellington I didn't send telegrams; they sent signals in those days. Where are these gunner boys? Where have they got to? They're supposed to be. in them? Where? Poor old <laughs> Jeff had to field all these. He, he couldn't answer them. He didn't know where they were either. <laughs> we all disappeared. Jeff. Just went. <laughs> and when we got, eventually we did, we stuck to our pact. We called it a pact. We stuck to our pact. We did meet at Palmerston North on that time. And the time, the date and everything. Got to Gisborne in the middle of the night, pouring with rain. Nobody expected us because, middle of the night, railway chips were closing down because that was the last train for the day. <laughs> they said, I'll ring the station soon. we had to ring, somebody woke them up in the middle of the night to get get a truck to come pick us up. Little truck arrived, we had to make two trips, <laughs> pouring with rain to take us out to the airfield. When we got there, there was no, no bunk ready for us, no bed, they didn't even know we were coming. And the orderly room, I suppose, the orderly chap on who's on orderly duties, you know, they have a duty orderly, and they, his job was to get us in some shelter, they put us in a big race course, under the race course under the, where the horses were, there was a bit of hay, they made our bunks out of hay. That was our introduction to Gisborne. <laughs> Yeah, and the next day we had to go meet the big and see, uh, Agar, I think was his name, Agar. And Ferdinand, he understood. As soon as we explained to him why, that we were under the impression we were going to do this pressure course, and uh, you go straight through to, you know, with 90, 90, 90, with 33 and a third percent out of nine, that's right, there was nine of us. That's right. The three of us weren't going to come home. We didn't like that idea at all. That was the guts of it. And he just was like a wet rag, he don't do it again, sort of thing. <laughs> he, he never made a scene. He never he understood. It wasn't... wasn't... disab... Well, it was, it was in order, I suppose, forthwith. <laughs> it depends on what you mean by forthwith. Well, we didn't have a fourth. <laughs> we went without. <laughs> yeah just that everything was pronounced forthwith <laughs> but anyway that was uh, our introduction to that we, we so happened there the Venturers arrived first the tbs came later 30 squadron i think it was 30 squadron we do uh, dave baldwin was uh, a co-pilot for me in one job he was he was in the uh, Gisborne, was and he he praying to Harvard doing a practice you a know, practice dropping torpedoes and sort of thing well, go through the motions of it and on that little island out in the ocean and he came to grief. That's my memories or oh, there's another interesting thing with Gisborne. the railway line went across the runway and there were occasions when who gave way to who <laughs> that sort of thing and uh, yeah. I think the railway, or well, the control tower, always kept in touch with the railways of trains and the movements and that. And we taxied out on this, the first trip off to Gisborne we taxied right across the railway line, shot up the other, we had a, hundred, a couple of hundred yards further up, turned around there we had to wait till the train had gone past. have <laughs> yeah, forgotten that. Check Probert was the pilot. Yeah, now it's coming back to me. It was, a, it was a Hudson, he took off in this Hudson. And I looked out the window, and there's the fuel pouring out the wing tank. They'd forgotten to put the lid back, uh, the cap, threw the cap back. So told the pilot to lose some fuel out the uh, starboard, uh, tank. Strike, he shut down everything, whittled down and did a wheel and come back. Because we could have sucked ourselves dry, you know. Before. Sucks of the wind, just sucks all the fuel out in the tank. <laughs> that was
0: my memory of Gisborne. Uh, so from there you went up to Fanoboi and joined the squadron as well? Yeah,
1: yeah soon as soon as the Venturers arrived uh, there was a need for crews for them first, so we were sent up there smartly. And uh, even then we had bother, we had, uh, had trouble with the undercart, so they said. Officially, but I think behind the scenes, there was a serious problem with the fuel tanks, the fuel system. Our pilots didn't like it. I think it was from memory five taps to be control the fuel to your engine, and they lost. Subsequently, lost a couple because of that. we didn't lose any of ours for that reason, although one, I think, was one that lost country grief up in uh, Florida, I think, was the cause of that. They traced it, the engineers traced it to the baffles, and of course the bogey gets around it with sabotage, there's all sorts of rumours, you know, nobody can prove anything. But our engineers were smart enough to know that whatever was done, whether it was intentional or not, was wrong. Any anyway, rate, fix it. You know, the new Zealand will fix a the thing. They won't get a new one like the Yangstan. Straight away a new I've had that experience too. But um, that's how the problem came with the fuel tanks, and I think that was more serious than the so-called fracture of a bolt in the undercart, I think was official. Talk about <laughs> what happened. <laughs> that's not right. Uh, yeah, so that's where the ventures come in.
0: Uh, yeah. And how long were you training there for before? Oh, you not
1: up? very long. We were. I think we were intended to have a month, but I think it extended a bit because of this fuel system, and we were there a little bit longer. Uh, we got away on the thirteenth, thirteenth of October. Is it it's on that notice up top? The thirteenth of October. Uh, who, who was your crew that you were put on to? The captain was Tom Mounsey. He was a flight lieutenant then. We all got ranks, different ranks as, we went, as the years went by. Um, not, I don't know whether it was Noel or Jack or O or, Double R Jack. I think was his first name. He was our uh, our navigator, but George Corte took over from him. That's right. I think Jack was. Uh, Time expired, he'd done his three tours or whatever it was. and, and uh, George Corte, K-O-R-T-E uh, with a little funny thing on top. <laughs> and he was a farmer from away over in um, a place called T-Fighty over in Gisborne, in that area somewhere. I haven't seen George from that day to this. Whether he's still alive even, I don't know. Uh, the radio operator was um, Ken Ken Ward. He was our little, little fella, and I think he died in England. He went back to England, as a, and last I spoke to him was at a function in Auckland, years after the war. I caught up with him, and he was doing a lot of good work for uh, the handicapped people. You know, um, that seemed to be his contribution to civilian life. And, and welfare and things like that. He was a welfare chap, did a lot of welfare work, you know. Uh, I was the turret gunner. Ken, Ken Camille, now he married a Canadian girl and I think from memory when the war finished he'd gone back up there. No, he broke a leg up in the Pacific, that's right, he, got a, he had a broken leg, fell out of a jeep or some damn thing. And we had to get another, another chap in a hurry. And so, so, this is a little bit of sideline here, our people's lives cross. Out of the blue, this chap came, we took him with us. I'd been to school with him in the boarding school days, wasn't it? Joe Hoy. He uh, didn't make the grade too well, even after the war. I don't know, I don't know his background, really. But Joe seemed to use me as a model what to do. I don't like saying it but the more I think of it I think it's true. What He came from Christchurch, he belonged to Christchurch. Somehow or other he found that I was here in New Plymouth and he came to New Plymouth and I was going to night school in those days to learn my trade, I took on a trade, you see. When the war had finished, you had a lot of catching up to do. What are you going to do? What are you going to be when you grow up? You can't be a wartime old bloke all your life, you know, you've got to do something. Life I faced life as it was, and I wanted to be a, a tradesman. Joe tried to follow my footsteps a wee bit, you know, that type of thing, and somehow or other, he didn't make it here, but I heard later that he did in Christchurch. He went into carpentry work down there and he worked with the, um, oh, who was it? I think it was the post office or some... He he did a lot of carpentry goodwill stuff, you know? As a public servant, he he went back into the public service for some reason. It must have been with the... um, Mind you, the post office had people too, that's right. It could have been a post office job. And uh, he died, I didn't, I never knew he'd died either until years later, yeah. snuffed out. But he came with me on two or three trips up in the Pacific,
0: yeah. So can you tell me about um, when you left for the trip north?
1: Yeah, well, well that, we didn't know how far these ventures could go. We went, we put drop tanks on them. You see in that photograph up there, there's drop tanks. That gives you another 60, 70, 60 gallons each, I think they were, 60-gallon tanks. Gives you another couple of hours of flying time and, and we used them. Took full load, full flow. We got as far as Norfolk the first day. <laughs> it, it seems silly now and seems pathetic, and it probably is. But we didn't. our pilots didn't take risks. They assessed things accurately. We didn't have calculators and press a button and all this sort of computer and all that. That hadn't even been invented. You had to nut it all out and do your homework. Uh, We got as far as Norfolk first hop. We left about lunchtime I think from memory and had a lunch of tea over there. When we arrived I liked the smell of the place. I smell oranges. We woke up in the morning, as oranges. Gee, where are these oranges? I was was fruit hungry. Nice oranges, but really. well, we stayed the night and had a look around. Took off the next day and we got to Tongatara, it's on New Caledonia. Did a hop over to there. We were intending to stay the night there, but nobody liked the smell of the place, and I didn't like the taste of the food. And the st- it was the first taste of uh, uh, grape juice, you know. I didn't mind grapes, so I didn't like the damn things, but I'd never heard of grape juice. That was all you had to drink, 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 drink juice. It didn't go down too well, and one thing led to another. Nobody sent say, well, somebody put it up the system, why don't we just keep going to Santos? Just keep going. we would probably, you know, they'd got the feel of the planes and the distance, and could, you know, they, their calculations were okay, that they would get the mileage out of them. Because to go to Santos from Tom it was a bigger hop than, say, from Norfolk to. And they were quite confident that the plane could do it. So, so we hopped off to, t- 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 up to Santos. We got to Santos. They had a bunk there for us and all that. See, when you've got 30 blokes in a hurry, there's another you know, 30 mouths to feed, 30 hats, 30 beds, 30, you know, logistics have to be planned. You can't just drop in on them. Because we struck that later on, I think. That happened time again, yeah. But uh, that's a different story. Um, That was the first time I saw fireflies. You know, you remember things that you first see for the first time and that was it. It's like me, I can remember that firefly flipping past me like so if it was last night. Same thing, uh, they're vivid, vivid. same as King's Swift, all over. When you see it for the first time, it sticks with you. You might see hundreds of them since, but not that first (laughs) one. So that was my memories of uh, Santos. Didn't impress me a lot. It was a big navy base then. It was a big, big base then, it was huge. Now they call it Vila, I think. Vila was the headquarters round the corner. But we never went to Vila. We went to Santos. <laughs> yes, we Santos. And then we, from there, we hopped off and got to to uh, Henderson Field. And I always remember the pilots, uh, Tom Mounsey and uh, Ken Ward saying that the change that had taken place from the time they were there before on, the, on the Hudson's, you see, and they could remember what it looked like, and it had been tidied up and a bit, made a bit more homely, and I think they had toilets on the field or something. No, they didn't in those days. Well, I Forget now, I forget what happened. But, but they were quite noted in their comments about how the camp has changed and everything. But they took us up. We got our camp was away up on what they called Bloody Knoll, um, or Bloody Ridge. I forget what the correct term. Bloody Knoll or Bloody Ridge. And uh, George Corte, he was in, he was a warrant officer. That's right. He was our leading ground crew in the hut. Each crew had its own hut, where possible, uh, and that was mainly to avoid waking everybody up, if you're all in different huts, and different, same crew, different huts, you're waking a whole heap of people up just to get their hell out. And we learned how to tie your boots together, that was another thing I learned. <laughs> Not, didn't take long to learn that one. What was that for? Mosquitoes like pension. Because <laughs> when you got up in the morning, you could only find one. You, know? <laughs> you tied two, the mosquitoes couldn't carry them. <laughs> That's my story. Now, basically, the idea was that uh, if anybody had to get away in a hurry, anything in the road, they'd just kick it out of the way. <laughs> it might be your boot you got kicked out the door and you can't find it. <laughs> That's the guts of it. It helped to keep the thing tidy, so be you only had to look for one. You have got both.
2: That's a good
1: idea. So, little things like that, we learnt in a hurry. So, talking about that... Bloody Noel Place, though it had a peculiar smell about it, like all jungles do—musty and funny. But when the rain came, it was worse. And then one day we see bones and things flying down the gutters. Didn't we found that? Been six hundred bodies been buried there during the. Earlier war, early part of the war. There'd been a big battle up there. They called it Bloody Noel. That's where we were camped. But, uh, well, we survived.
0: What was your first patrol like from there?
1: Uh, wasn't memorable to me. Like All I can remember is that we had to test our guns, of course. You always test those. You take nothing for granted. Took off. Uh, It was a coral runway, coral ground, like a a metal footpath, you know. Rolled and smoothed down and had the maintenance boys there rolling it all the time, wetting it to keep water. And I think the Yanks had got the hang of how to bond bond the coral, crush the coral and bond it with oil. They used a diesel type oil and when it got wet and that, the gravel was enough to give it grip and all that. It didn't slip and didn't get boggy, and that sort of thing. Later on, we had those mesh type up, up at We got to Bougainville. Yeah, that was a different thing there. Uh, but the first trip I had was nothing startling. We went out, everything worked all right, guns tested okay, petrol. Seemed to work all right. <laughs> we came home again. It wasn't much, you know. We, uh, we, we mainly took surveillance for shipping, looking for odd ships and things. Later on, when we got into the real fighting war, I call it the fighting war. Then it was different. Uh, well,
0: can you tell me about the the more exciting uh, trips? Yeah, that
1: yeah. I can tell you one in particular. And I think it happened while we were at Henderson Field. This was. Uh, the, the Americans, were, it was really full-on for Rabaul. The battle for ball was on, and that was part of it. And you, you probably heard about the, all the ships that got sunk off Safo Island and Iron Bottom Sound and all that. That was just a... We could see all that from where we were, from, from where we were camped. But um, the Japs seemed to know when there was a raid coming to... Somehow or other the Japs were ready for us every time and the coast watchers were given the task of locating the Jap lookouts or radio watch places and they found one on Choisel, a place called Choisel. I've got the charts there somewhere, Um, and we were given that job to go and knock it off. The, the Coast Boys did find the Coast Watchers. The Coast Watchers haven't been given a lot of history or a lot of publicity of what they did. They were valuable, fair income. They were. And we took one of them with us. He, he explained it to us. We met him on the strip there where where they'd found this station, radio, JAP radio station. Finished explaining it and he, he had a bit of difficulty with his English and that. So we bundled him in the plane to with us. <laughs> when he said that the best time to hit them was between quarter to six and six o'clock in the morning. That's when the Japs go down to this little stream, do their morning ablutions or wash up and clean up, wake up, get up and get back to work, you know. And that was the best time between quarter to and quarter past, I think was the time. Now, for us to fly from Henderson Field to find the place located and do the job, we had to get a straight, so we put him, took him with us. And on the way, he was a, he was a, uh, fuzzy, I call him fuzzy. Was he, he was a, a native, one of the natives, and uh, he had nothing to do. You see, it was about two, two hour, two and a half hour trip, and he was a bit bored. So I said to Ken, I said, he's a bit boy, he? you he can't, can't give him a job to do because he didn't know his way to I don't think he'd ever been in an aeroplane, he just sat down there in a big huddle. So we stuck a pair of headphones on him, we plugged it into there, and Ken tuned into 2UE Sydney. Music came bellowing out there, and his eyes opened out like that, and his mouth opened up. He'd never heard music come out of a head, out of a hat. <laughs> And I thought he'd bitten his tongue, you know. Everything was red. His whole mouth inside was red. And I thought, stroke, the poor buck has bitten his tongue. He's chewed it off. Mm. <laughs> he had nothing to do, you see, and fidgeting. And, that. and I thought he was nervous. But it wasn't. It was that beetle nut. They chew that beetle nut stuff. And it's sort of wild. Well, I'd never seen it before. i <laughs> never forgotten that. But we did the job. We, we hit the buck and knocked him out. And the reports came later, it's, uh, in another chap's diary, he wrote about a similar thing. It, uh, uh, they did have reports back of um, first aid bandages and bit of blood, that sort of thing. So we did do some damage and smashed the place down. It was at the top of Choisel. So that was one of the exciting ones, but the most exciting one and the most hair-raising I call it the longest ten seconds of my life. Ten seconds didn't sound long, but it was a long ten seconds that night. We were given a job to do the uh, and Jock was with Jock was in that one, too. He went through on their own. They, you know, they, they didn't hear the call back, they went straight through, did their part. But uh, was five venturers were selected to do a mine laying job, magnetic mine, in the Buka Passage. The of Passage is a stretch of water no wider than perhaps the Wanganui River from the Wanganui Bridge to the sea. It wasn't much wider. There might have been a mile or either way. That's how wide it was. And and it was a shortcut for the Jap ships to supply Rabal. If they didn't get through there, they had to go right round. They were using it as a submarine and cargo shortcut to Revoir. And our job was to drop these mines in there so they planned all this and there we go it' was a nighttime job there was 85 planes in the air that night oh no uh, no radio communication no lights Just get up there everything was planned and and we were to drop our mine 10 seconds past the jetty. Right, what happened? We get halfway wap inside of Bougainville there and there's a recall from the base. Uh, you couldn't see the plane. All you could do is see the next plane to you. You could just see the slight glow from the exhaust pipes. That's how we kept station with each other. And uh, I think one of the radio, Yanks broke radio silence, and I think that's what called it off. They, we ought all come home. Jock and his crew, they never heard that recall. They went on, and they were waiting at the entrance to the Book Passage too, for the time to, to go in. Nobody turned up, so they went in and did their job and came home, Come back the other way. <laughs> You've got to fly right to you. So anyway, we came back. Now, that mine was... Like, bigger than that sofa. The sofa's of It was... It was... About ten inches of clearance from the bomb bay. You couldn't close the bomb bays. The bomb doors were open. Couldn't close them. It was too big. So we took off with that damn thing, sticking out. <laughs> got all the way up there, and then had to come back with it. And there was the problem. Tom gave us the, the crew the opportunity that we bail out. He'd take it in, or we uh, risk it. We stuck with it. Tom's decided he could. We trusted him that he could fly the damn thing. We flew ours in. Uh, I think it was Holmes, I think, Dudley Holmes, I think, dropped his in the swamp out from Munda. Dropped the. This was all taken off from Munda, I think. We dropped it from. We were at Henderson Field the previous one. Next time, this Monday, that's the next stop further up. Now, uh, and as far as I know, that's where that magnetic mine's still there. <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I, if it is, it's no out of the shipping lane. You see, it was no good dropping them out in the ocean. You could blow your own ships up. So we brought those home and took off again the next night and did the job properly. So there was only three of us left out of the five. Jock had gone through, dropped his. The other one had dropped his in the swamp. So was still three to go. So we um, took off the next night and ten seconds past the jetty. And I counted me ten seconds. Said, Come on, drop, John, drop, Tom, drop the damn thing, let's get out of there. Because the tracer was going over the top. There was, there was an near strip on each side. And the Yanks, 85 planes, they were doing a mock raid on it was a diversion. They were di- diverting the attention from, from us for what we were doing, just to blowing their airfields up, you see. But the tracer was... Somebody had spotted the, tr- the first plane going through, and next thing there was a tracer going around. We were flying under an umbrella. And all those 10 seconds counting all the time. Another jetty comes along, another 10 seconds. Which jetty are they talking about? <laughs> and then, and up on the high ground at the top, I can remember that as clear as anything, there was a, a light, seemed to be locking down on us up on top of Bougainville, there's very high ground, well, be 3,000 feet high, And this light seemed to be a big eyeball in the sky looking at us, you know, watching everything we did. And I said to, to George, I said, I wish they'd get somebody to go knock that light out up there. You know, because I that they could see us. <laughs> we could hit them, they didn't like that on here. Uh, and as we get towards the far end, the tracer started coming towards us as well as over the top, and there's a pear shaped island ahead of us, and it was tracer come from all directions then. But Tom held his cool and got us out of it. Climbed out of that, we came down. The other side of Bougainville, and there was a hell of a battle going on down below, Empress Augusta Bay, that's where they made the landing on Bougainville, and uh, that was happening at the time, and there was a tanker on fire just off the shore, so we flew over. Our job was to stick at 5,000 feet, I think it was, I forget from memory now, from memory, and uh, you know, five or six miles off the coast. We, we diverted a wee bit to have a look at the ship on fire and all of a sudden it blew up. And next thing, all the sky lit up again. There was a Japanese, an American destroyer having a go at us. Oh, when they let, those American ships, when they let go, they let go every damn thing. Oh, it was a trace ago, it was like a big hose. Um, non-fighting war, I call it. It was the tidy up stuff, uh, surveillance and so on. Uh, when I first joined the Catalinas, um, it was, I had to meet them at Mechanics' Bay. That's right, the signal I had was a me- to attend at a certain time M- Mechanics' Bay in Auckland. And I met the crew and everybody there all waiting. There was a, it was an aircraft all tied up at the wharf and everything. We got aboard. There was only room for me left. <laughs> so we staggered into it. We got this plane out. Away we went. It took off. In those days, there was no Auckland Bridge. That didn't exist. It hadn't been invented. It hadn't been built. And we taxied away to blazes down through the harbour for miles. I thought, well... We're going by we'll boat this time, we're going to fly. And then they turned into wind and then we took off. And we trundled and trundled and trundled, and trundled, and trundled and trundled and trundled again, up and uh, for miles and she just wouldn't leave. We were too loaded down, so heavy, with a chock block with tucker and food and goodies and things for the boys up, top, up in, the, in the tropic. So, we had to turn around and do another trip. Bob Tuffy was our engineer calculator. He was busy working it all out and starting it. And they worked it out that the amount of fuel that we'd used on that particular first run would have equaled so much they got ways of working that out. I don't know how they did it, but they did. And they reckoned that the amount of weight then would be the equivalent might get them off. So they had another go. And away we go again, We're way back down to where we started which took us the best part of half an hour just, just taxing down there and <laughs> then zoomed back again. The way we staggered into the sky eventually, she bounced up, they bounced it. She just staggered in, just held its breath, sort of. Had another puff, another bit more. Inched it up, inch by inch by inch by inch. You see, you've got to leave enough space to be able to land again. You can't change course and come back again. Once you've got airborne, you've got to keep her up keep her going. So they kept her going. Up she went and we staggered into the sky and then well eventually we got to a place called Tulagi. I think we went non-stop all the way. Yeah, that was a long introduction to flying boats. The noise didn't appeal to me at all. It didn't, bad enough of the Venturers, but that damn thing rattling off the water and then when we landed it was the same thing in reverse, we splashed down. Yeah, I got used to them and my uh, time there I still had to, you know, you've got to fit into a different type of flying system timing and. Trips—they weren't just a morning trip or afternoon trip; it was a whole day trip. You come over your deck off at daybreak, you'd be home at dusk, sort of thing. They were long-range stuff, and got well at the end of the day. What have we done? Done nothing, you know. We just stooged up and down the slot—we called that the slot. It was supposed to be counting ships and things, but there was no uh, fighting work about it. There was no bombing around anything like that. But there was one job we had to do, and you've got to realize in those days wasn't just, the, the, just the, the natives that suffered uh, there. there. There was all sorts of habitation besides that. There was a hospital on Malaita. I think it was Malaita, was it? Malaita? Yeah, Malaita. There was a hospital there, and of course, their supply system stopped because of the war. But the Royal New Zealand Air Force, would, in its kindness, I suppose, I don't know whether we were obliged to do it or not, but I suppose we kept them going with mail, we kept them going with supplies if necessary and one thing another. And uh, we took this load of supplies to them one day and uh, we landed out in the ocean. There's no, it's not like in a, on an airfield, there's a runway and <laughs> there no marks, there's no marks, isn't no marker boys, you didn't know what was down below the water line. So we landed away out in the ocean there and these uh, natives come paddling out in their two pontoon stoon, uh, uh, canoes, sort of, you know, sort of an outrigger. They paddled their way out and they all seemed to be down at water level When <laughs> when they up to us they were full of sacks of fruit. That's what kept them so low in the water. They brought us out a swap over, a load of fruit or a load of uh, vegetables or a load of mail or whatever we had. They knew we'd brought something, so they brought out sacks of bananas and limes and pawpaws and all sorts of tropical fruits you think. So we made a swap over out in the middle, middle of the ocean. <laughs> but uh, it was a strange part of the war to me, because yeah. I'd been out there, I was sort of trained to shoot. Hit things. And got there, had a munch of a banana, instead. <laughs> it seems silly, but it's true. Now Dave, Dave Tribe was another chap that had a similar experience, except they had to go and pick up a, a hospital patient. Now I'm not certain which island they went to, but it was still occupied with the Japs, or well, the Japs that knew that they were there and they attacked them. And, They had to get the hell out of the place. I can't recall all the details, but I know he uh, was involved in one of those uh, missions or jobs where you get people to safety, to search and rescue safety type of thing. Um, Safety-wise, we were pretty lucky. We uh, did a Green Island operation where we softened up the place before the New Zealand troops went in. That was a big deal for us. Uh, I think there was uh, four. Four of us went in, um, two each way. We got to Green Island was a lagoon type place with like a horseshoe, and we went in at the entrance of the horseshoe type. Two went one, and two the other. We didn't bang into each other type of thing. But um, I know on that job, the Japs were still on it, but there was no opposition. Uh, I saw this little mission church there, and I said, Strike, I wonder if the Japs are using that as a devil, because one of the planes, he went over that way, and they were going to bomb that, and I said, I hope they don't bomb that church, there's no need to, you know. And anyway, we f- went the other direction, and we settled the um, found a, a barge. Uh, so we dropped the whole six bombs on the damn thing, cleaned it up, there was, didn't seem to be much else, not much activity anywhere, there was no... Uh, opposition coming up or anything so we cleaned up this barge. Now years later oh the, the, the New Zealand troops third division 30th battalion my brother was in the 30th battalion in, uh, Lavella, and fell the Vella and I used to keep in touch with them uh, by newspapers we used to drop newspapers we could get newspaper up from all from New Zealand they might be a week old, anyway, I dropped a load off over to a fellow, the fellow in the strip. Brother, with the message from my brother Gordon, I gave me his address and the, squ- the group, he said, he got the message. And blew me down. When we came home, he came home a later, before me actually, he knew we'd been up to Green Island, because he was on the, on the detail that went there and he saw the venturers doing the job in this sunken barge, and he cut a piece of the barge off. I've got it under the house here, and I'm going to make a fucking pen holder or something. It's in the back of my mind what to make, and I just can't think what to make out of it. So it's only a bit of Oregon, really, tied, but it came from a Jap barge off Green Island. Now, he told me that that barge, uh, was just, there was nothing startling about it, but it was full of push box. Now, what were the jets going to do with push bikes up in the jungle? You ask. You work that one out. I, uh, I've had my thinking of that thing. You know, what the hell would a large load of push bikes be doing up there? They were going to take over somewhere. Mm-hmm. In our own case, in New Zealand, I suppose, they could land on 90-mile 90, 90 beach. That's all they have to do, There's nobody lives up there. They could make an easy landing, they could stick them on push bikes, and they be down there for breakfast, <laughs> or something. But it's all conjecture. Nobody knows. Nobody wants to now, anyway. But a little bit of history. Mm. Um, I had a cousin that was in an army in Green Island, too. Now, there, they... Had trouble. There was a few casualties the, to dig the graves and things of like that. It was no easy matter. I think they had to blast them out with, with grenades or something. They used some military ammunition to blow the holes out in the in the coral. The coral was so hard. Uh, the water. When we, later on, I went up in nine We had a they had an airstrip there by then, and. Um, Flossy Flowers was in our hut with us. He came to grief. He had the brakes on, and she wouldn't stop. He was right off to the cliff edge of the cliff and balanced on the end of it, just about toppled over the top. And now he was taken home because he went tropper, he went berserk. And that's my remembering of Green Island, the problem of knocking up the graves and the trouble of short runway to land and everything. Oh, one other memory was um, the Yanks from where, when they got there. Got the first thing they do is put up a picture theatre of some sort, you know, and something to do. There's nothing, no, there's no um, nightclubs, there's no sports, there's no pictures to go and watch. So they rigged up this homemade picture theatre sort of thing, open here, got this thing going, and it was something. Jack was it? Uh, Jeff, somebody, Jack Dempsey is it? A Jim, uh, boxer? It was a boxing fight anyway. <laughs> and the machine broke down. Next thing, the chaps in the front row were getting up, having to go box themselves. They, they got so worked up because the machinery broke down that they started to fight with the people who tried to run it. Oh, you never see anything like it. The temperaments, tempers did fray a wee bit pretty quick. <laughs>
0: uh, well, I guess that's about all we can do because the tapes. Just Comes about ready to cough
1: it. Well, I'll, yeah. thanks for the opportunity to talk about these things. It's, there's nobody here to talk about them <laughs> to anymore. I'm just about one of the last of the survivors. There's not many of my vintage left. But uh, I don't regret it when I look back over the years. I think we were all good letter writers in those days, and I don't think I've written a letter since. If I do, it stays in the glove box so the post office is on my side of the road. If it doesn't get posted. I won't walk across the road to post a letter. It's sold the post office.
0: That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homeward.